Coming to you from the KFAI studio in Minneapolis, this is the Miniculture Podcast. I'm your host, Jamonde Tway. On the Miniculture Podcast, we listen to the best of miniculture, arts, culture, and history from all over the state. I, I could just like cry how cool this is. And nine times out of 10, people do a U-turn and are like, what is this? Because again, they live the life no one should have lived. I don't want them repeating that to me. It'll piss me off. They were the old Chinese, we were the new. We sang jazz, American jazz. KFAI is a volunteer-driven community radio station in the heart of Cedar Riverside, Minneapolis. This episode is going to be all about Minnesota history, about the creative ways that people are connecting with their past. At the start of the last century, the 1900s, we saw a huge wave of immigration pouring into the state. A lot of them came from Sweden, Norway, and also Germany. The main character in our story today, Bertram Boyum, is Norwegian. Born in 1918, he grew up speaking Norwegian and learning English in a one-room country schoolhouse. He became a farmer, and then he got the bug and decided to become an auctioneer. That's a skill that he was practicing even at the age of 100. Here is Boyum in his own words, as produced by Todd Melby. I was, I'm a purebred Norwegian, and uh, when I grew up, I, uh, was, I, I talked uh, very fluent in Norwegian. I had so glad you look well, he dug by Jesus' foot, or stjerner skines on min soul, or England's songs on set. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm Bertram Boyum. I live in Rushford, Minnesota. I live alone in my home here that I have lived in for 50 years. I moved in here in 1967. I was uh, born on a farm northwest of Rushford. My dad bought the farm from his dad, so it's a kind of a home farm. No electricity, no running water. We lived on a dirt road, and uh, my dad had a Model T. Uh, but uh, we got along okay, and I went to a one-room schoolhouse. Of course, no electricity there either, no running water. We had to turn a pencil sharpener by hand, and, and uh, we had the outside toilets, of course, and if we wanted to go to a toilet after during the, during the school time, we had to maybe raise our hand with uh, maybe one finger was a signal, then we could go out. The teacher would nod her head. We had all eight grades in one school in one room. Of course, the teacher was much more of a teacher in those days than just a plain teacher. She had to be a fireman. Uh, she was a custodian. She had to sweep the floors. And of course, she had to be a nurse. The little kids, you know, come and smash their finger or something. And of course, they'd be crying. And, and she would uh, uh, love them up and uh, maybe kiss them a little bit, maybe put some adhesive tape on them. And then, of course, and she'd like a grandma in the wintertime. She would bundle them up and be sure that all the buckles were fastened and the coats were tied and the scarves were on, mittens were on before she sent the, the little tykes home. We brought our own lunch to school, yes, uh, all the time. Uh, but on, we had a kerosene stove in the school, and a teacher would say, well, tomorrow now, if you want to bring eggs uh, to school, well, we'd, we'd bring eggs over, and then she'd boil them for us. But we had to mark our own eggs with a pencil so that we got our own egg back to be sure that it wasn't spoiled. That was a country school. It was a District 54 in the country. Went on a county, Fremont Township. 
Yeah, after I graduated from high school, of course, I worked on the farm for my, with my dad. Then uh, in 1940, I was married, and uh, we started farming on our own. My brother and I, was on a, we rented the home farm from my dad. I always had it kind of in the back of my head that I wanted to do something else. I had been selling the uh, bazaars at the Arndale Church. We had a bazaar there for every year, and I'd been asked to sell that. I had, no, I had no training. I just picked it up myself. And I think it was the third or the fourth year, my aunt come to me and she said, Bertram, she said, you're so good at this auctioneering. Why in the world don't you become an auctioneer? And and that's all that I needed to, to leave and, and go. That was in 1966, and I've been an auctioneer ever since. Okay, let's have an auction sale. I am at $20 and a one five. Five, anybody? Five. In order to be a good auctioneer, you have to be understood. I bid 30 over here and now 5 5. Would you give me 35 now 40? I bid 35 now 40 now 5 5. Anybody There's a lot more to the auctioneering than the, than the people see from the, from the outside. When you're selling, you've got to remember where the bid is and how much it is and then keep going back and forth. 85 anybody 85? 85 anybody 85? At my 80th birthday bash way back in the other century, I, I had a polka band at my 80th birthday bash, and on my 90th birthday, uh, I also had a polka band. That was the Blue Ribbon Farmers, Blue Blue Denim Farmers. What do you plan for your 100th birthday? <laughs> well, we are, I haven't I haven't planned that yet. I got to reach 100 before I get, start planning it. Bertram Boehm turned 100 in 2018. He did have music by a polka band, and then he did what he does best, presiding over a live auction to benefit a program that provides meals for seniors in Rushford and also neighboring communities. Boyan would have been in his teens when the subjects of our next story burst onto the musical scene. Now, music in the 1930s and 40s was dominated by big band and jazz. Think Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, croning melodies and upbeat dance tunes rocking the airwaves. And in the midst of all of that, our sisters from Minneapolis toured coast to coast, dancing and singing in four-part harmonies. It's the very same old story. They were the Kim Lou sisters. You might not have heard of them because very few of their recording exists today. It's partly because we were fighting World War II and partly because of the discrimination the sisters encountered as Chinese Americans. Right now, the daughter of one of those singing sisters is trying to introduce a whole new generation to the Kimmies. I'll let producer Diane Richard tell the story of the Kim Liu sisters. Perhaps you're familiar with those singing sisters from Minneapolis who tore up the floorboards in the 1940s. Nope, not the Andrew sisters, the Kim Liu sisters. They became the first Asian-American act to star in Broadway musical reviews, and they were known as the Chinese Andrew Sisters. That's Leslie Lee, who's making a film about the Kim Liu sisters. She knows the subject well. They were her mother and her aunts. When I was a child, my mother would start tap dancing when she was waxing the kitchen floor, and they would break into song in four-part harmony during Easter when they were basting the Easter ham. The Kimmies, as they came to be called, wore their jet black bangs blunt. 
danced in beaded gowns and sang with gusto. Their names were Alice, Maggie, Janae, and Patricia. But she was called Bubbles by her sisters. <laughs> because when she was a baby, she blew saliva bubbles from her mouth. <laughs> Which fit because she had a very, very bubbly personality. The girls were the products of a Minnesota meet-cute story, circa 1915. My grandmother had just been paid, and she had her paycheck in her hand. She was walking across one of the many bridges in Minneapolis, and my grandfather was coming over from the opposite end of the bridge. The wind took it out of her hand. It tumbled across the bridge, and who picked it up on the other side but uh, the man who would be her husband, my grandfather. The couple soon fell in love. Both had escaped political unrest in their home countries. Lena from Poland, her husband, Shergim Louis, from China. He was a paper son. and Which means that he came over from China with falsified documents because it was during the era of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which prevented Chinese laborers from entering the United States. Lena was a dressmaker, a perfect skill for the soon-to-be stage mom. Her husband was a waiter at the Nankin Cafe. My mother said it was the finest Chinese restaurant in Minneapolis. The Nankin is where the family act got its start. There was a goldfish pond in the middle of the restaurant, and they would use the goldfish pond as their stage setting, and they would sing and they would dance for the uh, the patrons of the Nanking Cafe. In time, the act went from kitty reviews to vaudeville, Broadway, and then, during the war, overseas with the USO. Between gigs, the Kimmies were typical Minnesotans. They'd go to Powderhorn Park to skate. Uh, they just had to make sure they didn't fall and hurt themselves because they had to appear on stage and dance and they couldn't have skinned knees and broken bones. Leslie is still working on her documentary. I asked her how strongly the Kimmies identified with their Chinese heritage. There were a lot of Chinese who did the usual acts of acrobatics, juggling, uh, but they, as my Auntie Bubble said in the film, they were the old Chinese, we were the new, and we didn't do the Chinese type of act. We sang jazz, American jazz. Yet the sisters suffered several acts of discrimination, one of them on a train. The Kim Lu sisters were performing in Canada, and when they reached the border coming back to the United States, the conductor said, get these Chinese women off the train. And the three Kimmies, my mother had already married and had left the act by then, thought to themselves, wait a minute, you know, we're American citizens. What are you saying? The train left them at the station. In the film, though, the women look back on their career with anything but bitterness. Their goal was that we are going to succeed on the stage. That's what mom wants us to do. We've seen that people like our act. We can't let this racism stop us from succeeding. The band broke up after the war, and the sisters dispersed. Leslie hopes her documentary pays homage to these women. You know, at first I thought maybe it's only interesting for me because it's my family. But people kept on saying, this is a really important story, not only a Chinese-American story. This is a very important story 
because it's an American story. For KFAI, I'm Diane Richard. We reached out to Leslie Lee, and her film is still in post-production. But the official companion book to the film is out now. It's called Just Us Girls, The Kim Lu Sisters. The book includes 50 vintage black and white photos to really help you see the story you just heard. It's available as an e-book on Amazon, and Lee says all the proceeds is going to go towards finishing the film. By the way, that's Lee, spelled L-I, just in case you want to do a little research. Maybe history wasn't your favorite subject in school. Maybe it put you to sleep. The guy in our final story, well, he's sleeping his way through history like he's actually sleeping. Joseph McGill is in his late 50s. He's got a desk job and a family, and for years he's connected to American history in part as a Civil War reenactor. And now he's on a quest to spend the night in places where enslaved people like his ancestors slept, lived, and worked around the country. Usually... When I'm bringing my own material, it's a padding, it's a sleeping bag, and a pillow. Now, when I started this thing, I would also bring a club. Because, again, I was sleeping in these places alone. Um, I feared animals more so than humans. McGill founded the Slave Dwelling Project. That mission has taken him all over the country to a lot of pretty uncomfortable places. And one of them is Fort Snelling in St. Paul. McGill is not doing it to commune with his ancestor. He's pretty clear about that. Here's Ryan Dawes with that story. At Fort Snelling in St. Paul, I'm Ryan Dawes. On this quiet summer evening, Joseph McGill has traveled from South Carolina to sleep in a former army outpost overlooking the confluence of the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers. Now, it's a very simple act. Sleeping is, is very simple. Anybody could do that. But sleeping in one of these spaces is, uh, it, it, is where the curiosity is, is garnered. McGill is the founder of the Slave Dwelling Project. He travels the U.S. to pay notice to places where enslaved people once lived. And he stays the night. One night it could be an attic in New England. Another night a kitchen in Arkansas. Comfort, as you can imagine, is not a common quality in these spaces. I've seen some with dirt floors. I'm glad there's not a dirt floor in here. Dirt floors scare me the most. Because, you know, I've stayed in over 110 uh, slave dwellings. And, and there are all kinds of extremes. McGill says that experiencing these extremes is not an effort to commune with enslaved people. I don't want to do that because, because again, they lived a life no one should have lived. I don't, I, don't, I don't want them, I don't need them repeating that to me. I don't want them repeating that to me. It'll piss me off. And I, and I, and I can't, I cannot carry on with this in that frame of mind. And if, 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 if I did that, then when I'm talking to the stewards of these places, they'll see that. They'll see all through it, that I'm an angry black man. And they're not going to invite an angry black man to their, to their property to come in and, 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 and talk badly about them or, or talking about reparations and you owe us and this, that, and the other. And, you know, to communicate with the ancestors, if, it, if that is, is indeed possible, would take me to that place, a place that I don't want to be. Instead, it's all about... Awareness. And a lot of times, until I sleep in these places, people had no idea that slavery existed in some of these places. Or they know, they knew that it existed, they know it existed, but they don't want to go there with that subject matter. Which brings McGill to Minnesota. 
Well, Fort Snelling is ground zero for slavery in Minnesota. Mary Chalman is a program developer with the Minnesota Historical Society. The Army established Fort Snelling here uh, in 1819. Construction began of the fort in 1820. The same year the Missouri Compromise passed, supposedly banning slavery in the North. But... Basically, from the beginning, people started bringing enslaved people up into this region. Officers stationed at Fort Snelling were given a stipend to employ a servant. However, rather than employ someone, they would purchase enslaved people and then they would pocket that, that money, that stipend. Black people enslaved by white officers at Fort Snelling had to cook, clean, and perform other menial tasks. Even though slavery was illegal in this region, um, the federal government and the army did know that it was happening here and did nothing to enforce that. From 1836 to 1840, an army doctor named John Emerson forced a black man named Dred Scott to cook and clean for him at the fort. Scott would later claim his time in free territories like Minnesota and free states like Illinois should negate Emerson's ownership of him, so he sued for his freedom. But in 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against Scott saying he had no claim to citizenship in America. Now, roughly 178 years later, in the same space Scott and his wife Harriet lived and worked, Joseph McGill will spend the night in a sleeping bag. The room has stone walls and an enormous fireplace where the Scots would have cooked for their owner, who lived just upstairs. It's stuffy and kind of buggy. Gaps in the dusty floor planks reveal the ground below. Even with the door shut, mosquitoes still buzz around. This sweaty room is where McGill wants to leverage your curiosity and confront the complexity of our state's history. This is Fort Snelling. This also uh, ties Minnesota to that institution of slavery. You know, that, 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 that thing that we try to deny, uh, especially if you're not a southern state, you try to distance yourself from that institution of slavery. But we can't. It footprints all over this place of, of enslaved people. You know, the Scots were not the only ones enslaved here. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's a little known fact. Little known until now. Minnesota Historical Society research notes that in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, anywhere from 15 to 30 enslaved people were working at Fort Snelling every day and every night. For KFAI, I'm Ryan Dawes in St. Paul. Joseph McGill has spent the night in more than 100 sites spread across 19 states, and he's still going. He's not alone anymore. Nine years after starting the project, McGill says he's used each site as an opportunity to talk about slavery and its legacy. He's got a full schedule lined up for 2019, and you can follow the movement at theslavedwellingproject.org. The Miniculture Podcast is produced by Emily Bright, Todd Melby, Sophie Nikitas, and Nancy Rosenbaum. Our music is by Javier Santiago. Support for Miniculture was made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. If you liked what you heard, don't be shy. Share the word. Share the love. I'm your host, Jamonde Tway. Till next time. Mm-hmm.